Welcome back to the Teach for Justice podcast. This is episode 11. We recorded this episode in November 2022. I'm a public school teacher on fall break, and I'm grateful and excited to present our guest, Ashley McBride. In spending this year tracking issues in education, I regularly came across a very small list of local education reporters using both social media and their local news websites to shine a light on the school district in their coverage area. Regular listeners will remember that we spoke to Cole from Twin Cities Citizens Report in episode four, who elaborated on teacher strikes and district issues in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Ashley covers Oakland Unified School District in Oakland, California, and this is a district that had one heck of a year. But as you listen to our episode, you'll learn from Ashley that this year was years in the making. OUSD has recently been through multiple superintendents, budget crises, and a 2019 teacher strike. This year, they went through announced school closures, two teachers protesting, with a hunger strike in response, campus gun violence, and an intense school board election that recently wrapped up. The entire time, I found Ashley's coverage to be thorough, well-researched, honest, and presented through multiple perspectives without bias. A lingering question for me is how widely consumed has it been? Do people in other parts of the country know what is going on in Oakland? Did the teacher strike... Uh, the hunger strike by the teachers, for example, make national news? If not, why not? Hmm. Ashley, thank you for agreeing to appear on Teach for Justice and being willing to discuss your coverage of Oakland Unified School District this year. And <laughs> I'm not sure if you agreed to all this. And uh, we're and to uh, talk about journalists' role. Uh, in the information ecosystem. Uh, for starters, uh, did you want to give us a quick rundown of your current coverage area and topics? Um, well, I have I have been following you your work this year. Uh, we featured your coverage of the teachers, uh, uh, Andre Sanchez and Moses Omolade, who went on hunger strike earlier this year. Um, could you give us a rundown of what Oakland Unified has been going through this year? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me on, Alfredo. Um, so I am, my name is Ashley McBride, and I am the education equity reporter for the Oakland side. We are a small nonprofit newsroom in Oakland, California. Um, we also cover housing and homelessness, city hall and policing, arts and community, small and immigrant owned businesses, and traffic violence and road safety, all focused on the city of Oakland. And so my beat specifically spans public K through 12 education in Oakland, including Oakland Unified, which is the public school district, and then um, the public charter schools here. Wow, so, that's a lot of important stuff. How's that? How's it been going over there? Um, it's a lot. So I do try to you know, cover the school district and charter schools equally, but this year, a lot of my coverage has focused on what's been going on in Oakland Unified. Um, they've had a really turbulent year. Should I just dive in? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, so it's it's kind of hard to start with just this year because the issues that face Oakland Unified School District go back decades. So I'm going to back up a little bit. 
Um, but finances have trouble have troubled um, this district for years and years. And back in the 2000s, Oakland Unified was actually taken over for six years by the state because of financial insolvency and budget issues. And those budget issues have been pretty persistent uh, since then. And one of the ways that uh, the district has tried to address these challenges is through um, closing schools, permanent school closures. Because in California, school districts get their funding from the state, and a lot of it is based on student attendance rates. So if attendance or enrollment in general goes down from one year to the next, that means a school district could receive less funding um, Mm -hmm. from year to year. So in OUSD, enrollment has been trending downward for the past several years. And so um, district leaders turn to school closures because they say, Certain schools are under-enrolled and they cost more to run than the revenues they bring in per student. So then we have to, um, they have to keep them afloat by borrowing from the general fund. Um, and they say that's just not sustainable. Uh-huh. So coming up to the present this year, the district was again facing budget constraints. And about a year ago, the board actually got a letter from the county superintendent who monitors the finances of all the districts in the county. Mm -hmm. And she wrote that she had concerns about Oakland spending and they needed to rein it in. And one of the options presented to the board was um, closing and consolidating schools. So two months later in February of this year, the board voted to close or merge um, 11 schools between this year and next year. Um, that's a really condensed version, but that's a rundown. And so that 11 decision, schools out of how many? Um, o- Oakland Unified oh, has about 80 and okay. in charter schools, there's about 40. So there's 120 schools total in the city of Oakland, which is something that um, while school closures are very controversial here, I think a lot of people do agree that there's just too many schools for the number of students that are here. So, you know, people say that you know, something has to change. And is it your understanding, just for clarification, that the school district can, while they can select certain schools to be closed, the charter schools are on a separate deal. They're they're untouchable in terms of this closure conversation. Is that right? Right. right. So charter schools, um, while they do have to go to the board that approved them, which is usually the school district, but it can also be the county or the state. Um, They go to the board to make changes to their charter, which includes like expanding or moving locations. Um, Beyond that, those schools are independent from the school district. So they have their own boards that really run them. And so OUSD can't really decide to close those schools, not unless there's something like, like very like glaringly wrong with those schools. But generally, um, if the OUSD board is considering closing schools, it's just their district schools. So about a third of the district is charter. Is that, is that a lot? It sounds like a lot. That is a lot. I believe <laughs> OUSD and LAUSD are the the areas with the highest um, like number and proportion of charter schools um, in the in the region. Wow. Okay. Um, what about the uh, Oakland Unified situation? Have you found the most difficult to get accurate information on? And and when you are having trouble getting accurate information, how do you handle that? Yeah, so I started covering Oakland schools in April 2020, which, you know, was a very overwhelming time to begin covering schools, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. (laughs) 
Um, and so one thing that has surprised me since then is just how contentious everything is. And that's because everyone truly believes they're doing the right thing for students, um, whether it's the debate over school closures or, you know, when I started two years ago, it was the debate around, you know, reopening schools or keeping them closed and continuing in distance learning. And so people feel really strongly about it. And what makes my work difficult, um, particularly in covering Oakland schools, is that Bay Area media hasn't really consistently covered OUSD. And so, as I said before, a lot of the problems in Oakland go back years and years. And it's really hard to find like solid reporting of past actions the board took or past things the superintendent did to get us where we are now. So that's something that I... Um, kind of struggle with all the time because I do want to include that historical context in my stories. Um, so one resource that I in, that I turn to a lot is newspapers.com, which is like a repository of newspaper archives. And that can be really helpful for newspapers that don't exist anymore, like the Oakland Tribune, which was the newspaper for Oakland. And it, uh, it closed, I'm not sure, a few years ago. Um, but with that, Oakland really lost its main consistent news source. And that's part of the reason why the Oakland side even exists. We just launched um, in 2020 because the city didn't have a dedicated um, news source. Beyond that, I think it's really valuable to talk, just talk to people who have that institutional memory, people who have been around for a long time and can talk about what it was like in the 2000s when um, OUSD was being run by a, um, a state administrator and not the board. So those are a few of the things I rely on. When you uh, get access to some of these older papers to look at the history of it, um, do you find that that contentiousness you referred to earlier has been there a while or is there a direct relation between the lack of media coverage and accountability that comes with, you know, local media coverage. And I don't know, people just sort of playing a little looser with the resources they have. Yeah, I definitely think um, the lack of media is a factor because when there's not, um, you know, a legitimate news source covering these things, people end up filling those information gaps themselves and they start, you know, their own blogs or whatever. And they um, oftentimes have, uh, you know, their perspective is skewed and that's not a bad thing, but it just is like, you have to acknowledge that they might have a bias and that that might not be the way that they're presenting things, maybe the way that they are understanding them. And so you just have to um, take those sources with a grain of salt. But I do think, you know, those um, like kind of oral histories and perspectives from people is just as important and understanding how we got to where we are. Well, you know, this is partly what drew my attention to your work, which I found on Twitter, where I, you know, pretty active uh, just as a teacher and um, now as a, as a, as a podcaster. And, and, you know, we interviewed uh, uh, Paul from Twin Cities uh, News Report on what's going on in Minneapolis, but uh, your work stuck out for being, you know, sort of non-biased, right? Like just presenting it, uh, sort of old school. I grew up getting a physical newspaper, right? And reading, you know, the sections that were attractive to me in the moment and then finishing it, finishing it later. But there, there, we don't have that anymore. And it just sounds like, and, you know, I'm on the educational social media sphere, constantly looking for 
things to cover. This has been my, you know, my my mission this year with the with the podcast. And we are left disproportionately with these biased outlets. And I'm finding as a classroom teacher on that front line is students are very, very confused as to what to believe and who's credible and how to access it easily. Um, which leads me to my next question. Uh, in your experience then, this year or the last couple of years since you you got on this beat right when COVID hit, <laughs> uh, which format for you was the most effective this year or the over the last couple of years? The the you know the the Oakland side website or 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 social media? Um, I would say it's hard to say, but I mean you found my work through social media. <laughs> so, you know, I can't deny the impact that Twitter has had you know, whatever ends up happening with Twitter. Right. right. <laughs> uh, right. For people watching this in the future, Twitter's in a precarious situation <laughs> right now. Yeah. Um, but Twitter has br- did bring a lot of visibility um, to my work, especially this year and covering some of the different demonstrations and protests that were happening against school closures. Um, the Oakland side, as I mentioned, we just launched in 2020. So Um, One thing I had to face when I was first starting out is that people didn't know who we were or who I was. And so that was another barrier to getting information is that I would like send off emails or make calls to people and they would go unreturned because people were like, I don't know who this person is or who they work for or why I should talk to them. But I will say over the past two years, um, my work has, you know, made an impact and people know who the Oakland side is and they know who Ashley is, who covers Oakland schools. And I do think in part because of Twitter, um, being able to amplify my message to people outside of the Bay Area in a way that our website doesn't really, because it's just limited to our website, you know, people kind of have to come across it randomly in a way that they might not on Twitter. Which of the groups has been more really receptive then in terms of providing you info? If you had to choose between the school district, the union, and then just like us rank and file teachers? I mean, who's been easier to sort of get info from? Um, I think it depends on what information I'm trying to find. I think they're all valuable. Um, One thing I'm learning with, with working with the school district is Um, it's really good to know who exactly I need to speak to. And so I can reach out to them individually, as opposed to going to like the, the district spokesperson who, you know, is responsible for kind of giving the, the district's, you know, perspective from nowhere. I would rather talk to like the real person who's on the ground, like doing the work. Um, But they all have value. You know, I love talking to rank and file teachers about what's going on in the classroom. And then the union can also be a source um, for, you know, knowing what like labor as a whole or that that um, labor division as a whole is feeling. Yeah, it's been for and for those people who haven't been following Oakland Unified, I mean, gosh, there's been school violence uh, that. Uh, the teachers went on a hunger strike to protest the closures, you know, teachers striking. I mean, it, it's been uh, tumultuous. And recently an election did that. Has the election been resolved with the? I love ranked choice voting, but uh, but I know it takes a little bit longer to get, um, you know, sorted out. Has that election been sorted out? 
So not quite. The election oh, well. <laughs> was almost uh, two weeks ago now. People are so mad California <laughs> takes so long. Um, but today we're expecting the final results update from the registrar. So we will see um, what the final results are. But for the school board, um, three of the seats were up and it's a seven member board. Mm-hmm. So almost half of them. And um, none of the incumbents were running. So all three people, whoever is elected, will be new. And school closures were definitely top of mind um, for a lot of these candidates. Many of them ran explicitly to say, like, I'm going to reverse or I would like to vote to to reverse these closures if I get elected. And um, the, the election, one of the races is kind of too close to say right now who's going to win. But it looks like if the current leaders are who um, will end up being on the board, it looks like they, the board will have enough votes to reverse the school closures, which will be extremely interesting if that happens next year. It doesn't necessarily resolve the, the money issue. I think what they got to get to is were they mismanaging it or was there just not enough? Because I mean, as a teacher, it just seems like we were being told as educators here in California that some money came in during COVID, you know, that was supposed to help with some of these issues. And so um, just not sure where the, the root of the issue is, where that, where that funding went. Um, let's shift to kids here, because that's for me always my first, you know, primary focus. Um, I've heard people accuse our current high school students of being disinterested in current events uh, as well as activism. Uh, what have you seen from young people in Oakland either confirm or dispel that description? Yeah, I would say whoever is saying that, <laughs> I must not talk to very many kids because at least in Oakland, Oakland students are so active. Um, some of the protests against school closures that I covered earlier in the year were student-led. Um, students here fought for the youth vote, which... Um, they you know, want to be able to vote for their school board representation because they feel that the school board makes decisions about them. Mm-hmm. And yes, so, they do. <laughs> yeah, last year, um, students organized to get um, a ballot measure in front of the city council who then voted to put it on um, the ballot. Or no, it was in 2019 and 2020 that they were doing this work because in 2020, Oakland voters did approve the youth vote, which lowered the voting age to 16 for school board elections. Okay. Unfortunately, it wasn't implemented for this year's election. Um, the registrar, uh, they had to, you know, they basically will have to revamp the voting machines and voting systems to recognize 16 year olds because, uh-huh. you know, for every other race, you have to be 18. Um, okay. So there's still work that needs to be done to implement that, but students made that happen. Um, Students here were also a part of the campaign in 2020 to remove armed police from school campuses, Mm -hmm. which is um, something the Oakland School Board did. And another area that there's been a lot of youth activism is in climate change and environmental sustainability. Um, Youth versus Apocalypse is a group that's based in the Bay Area, um, but it has a strong presence in Oakland. Uh They regularly are holding protests and marching through downtown Um, to bring attention to climate change because these kids are saying like, this is our world that we're going to inhabit in, you know, 20, 30 years. We want it to still be here. Something makes sense about that argument. It's hard (laughs) to, you know, I mean, 
something makes sense about that argument. Absolutely. Well, I didn't know that they were doing all that. And that's certainly um, encouraging. And if you're a regular listener of Teach for Justice, I think you're going to agree with me that, you know, if you give them the space to talk and they feel comfortable with you, they'll they'll tell you what they're thinking about. And we got, and including them in the decisions, or at least including them in the conversation, um, for me and my experience has only yielded positive results. Um because they may have a take or a perspective that you hadn't considered. And, you know, they, they have some, some really solid things to say if they feel, feel comfortable around you. Uh, and so speaking of student voice, I have a, a podcast club at a school that doesn't have an active school newspaper. What advice would you give to a high school student frustrated with how hard it is to get straightforward news and current events uh, who wants to learn more about journalism and, and maybe taking things into their own hands in terms of reporting what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I would tell them they're not alone. If you're not media savvy or media literate, it can be really difficult to discern between the you know responsible, legitimate news outlets versus those that have a bias or deal in misinformation. And so I would, one thing I would recommend is trying to get information from the source as opposed to, you know, someone you follow on Instagram or TikTok who maybe posts about current events or talks about current events. If you see someone talking about a, a specific story or news article that interests you, go to Google and try to find a news article about it. Um, some of the, the reputable national outlets include the New York Times or the Washington Post um, or the Associated Press. If your town still has a local newspaper, you should support that one. Um, I also would say if there's a journalist either in your city or um, elsewhere who you've learned from or gained something from, reach out to them. Journalists love connecting with students, at least uh, most of the journalists that I know. Uh -huh. I think that we're flattered when there are people who genuinely appreciate our work because we're always getting so much criticism. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we care about the legitimacy of our field and we want people to be more media literate. Um, so many journalists would be happy to take the time to talk to a young person about how we do our work or how we covered a certain story. Nice. And I, I appreciate you saying that. And I think my podcast clubbers are going to really appreciate that as well. It, it's, it's tricky because my, what I'm learning with these kids is they lump everyone in one category. If you're mm -hmm. on social media, you're a social media influencer. They don't separate legitimate journalists and they don't necessarily know how to separate a legitimate, you know, unbiased journalist because they're, they're probably in the minority at this point, just in terms of what they have access to. And the other thing that hit me in preparing for this was our local paper down here um, isn't even uh, like available for free from the school library, you know, website. Mm -hmm. And so they don't get exposed to what traditional, um, you know, legitimate journalists do and how they do it. It's not something that they... Uh, end up comfortable with uh, where someone, you know, I'm almost 50. I, I had a physical newspaper growing up when they transitioned to digital. I just kind of understood how it all worked, but there was a credibility built in. Uh, and now uh, there's, they don't even have that access to, I don't know if in Oakland unified, like you could go, a student can go to the library and get the local paper for free and, 
kind of and and find stuff, but they they can't down here. And I think that's a big miss for some of these places to to not hook them in kind of a creepy way, but just get them accustomed to saying this is a legitimate source about my local area, and I'm going to go there maybe first before I then look outside for a bland generic coverage of the teacher strike or the I I don't even I didn't even see that hunger strike make like national I thought it was going to make national news mm-hmm. did you think it was going to make national news I did I was, looking, <laughs> I, I was looking all over for it I couldn't find anything um I don't know I mean I think that is also um a reason why it's so sad that local news has been so decimated because um there have to be the journalists and the newspapers available to cover those things to put them into the national spotlight right yeah that was uh that was super surprising for me um and i appreciate just want you to know from a teacher's perspective i appreciate you covering it and all all the work that that you did uh on it um all right Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to add um, the point that you mentioned about um, paywalls and like having to having to pay being a barrier. I think that's a big issue in journalism that a lot of journalists and news outlets are are trying to figure out, like, how do we sustain our newsroom while also making our information like widely available and accessible to people? Um, And at the Oakland side, um, we're a nonprofit and we're supported by our members. So while we do have ads on our site, we don't have paywalls, um, but that's only because there are still people who willingly give um, their money to support the local news outlet. Right. I, yeah. It's a tough, I, I know it's, but it's like education. It's is education, you know, is that the big thing if it's, you know, economically sustainable or is it a mm-hmm. public good that we just have to figure out how to fund? I, I, I just, feel like we have the same sort of trap with local having local news having people who can make a living while providing the the service of legitimate credible information that isn't making people yell at each other over dinner and things like that definitely (laughs) all right well um here's our here's our closing question for you and i i like i said i appreciate your time i know you got an election that you're finishing covering and and things like that but um while I understand that you aren't a teacher, um, I try and ask all of my guests the same final question. So I modified it a little bit. What does it mean to be a journalist with justice as a goal? Thank you for that question. It's a really interesting one. Um, And for me, I think one of the ways to deliver justice in my work is to simply be a witness to what is happening and to document these events for the record. Um, Honestly, I think it's an injustice that this school district has been so undercovered for so many years by local media, which means that a lot of the um, decisions and reasons for why OUSD is in the situation it's in are just lost to history. Um, So something that drives my work is being able to document these things as they're happening so that people don't forget and for accountability so that five years from now, um, and this is just an example, but if five years from now, if the district is in the same position, the public can look back at my work and whatever journalists are covering um, the situation, they can look back at my work and say, you all made these decisions in 2022 that you said would lead to a certain outcome. And now five years later, that didn't happen. So, you know, what happened? Why not 
And that's something that I just always keep in the back of my mind um, while I'm doing this work. Well, you know, I appreciate it. Uh, just as a public school teacher, I just want to tell you you're doing a great job and it probably goes unrecognized quite a bit or unappreciated. And and I know students don't always have the language and that thing that says, hey, I want to thank you for covering our our protests or, or our concerns. Um, you, you've posted multiple times, hey, let's hear it right from the kids. And I just love that you go directly to the kids also. And so um, uh, I'll link different ways to get a hold of you here to the to this episode but i just wanted to say thank you for coming on and helping me with my mission of just trying to just trying to understand what's happening in education this year uh from multiple perspectives and it has been hard in some areas where i've been looking to get more information to get um, information sort of as credibly clean and unbiased uh, uh, as yours that is also well researched and so just uh, I have nothing but uh, positive things to say and, and encourage people to check out your work and encourage you to keep keep providing that service because it's it's much needed and has a ton of value. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Alfredo. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed this conversation. And um, I know it, you reached out to me like earlier this year <laughs> and it took a while for us to get it together, but I'm really glad that we were able to do this. That's all right. We made it happen. And I'm, I'm very grateful. I look forward to seeing what else you're working on. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye. that is it for episode 11 of the teach for justice podcast i am thankful for all of you out there who are interested in issues in education i am thankful for my colleagues who with varying degrees of risk teach specifically for justice while managing all of the many issues facing educators today. And I just wanted to give all of you out there a shout out who are doing that very thing. And I'm thankful for our students. These kids showed up uh, in the recent election. They are out there um, using their voice, uh, making themselves heard. I think, you know, potentially the pandemic has clarified a lot of things for these young people and certainly helped them reevaluate their priorities and and hopefully we're going to see a group of young people really really step up if you're a public school teacher and have been for a long time this should not surprise you but for the rest of you i think the kids are going to be all right 